Chapter Four, Part One of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Four, Part One. Anthony Trollope. When, a few months ago, Anthony Trollope laid down his pen for the last time, it was a sign of the complete extinction of that group of admirable writers who, in England, during the preceding half-century, had done so much to elevate the art of the novelist. The author of The Warden, of Barchester Towers, of Framley Parsonage, does not, to our mind, stand on the very same level as Dickens, Thackeray, and George Eliot, for his talent was of a quality less fine than theirs. But he belonged to the same family. He had as much to tell us about English life. He was strong, genial, and abundant. He published too much. The writing of novels had ended by becoming with him a perceptibly mechanical process. Dickens was prolific, Thackeray produced with a freedom for which we are constantly grateful, but we feel that these writers had their periods of gestation. They took more time to look at their subject. Relatively, for today there is not much leisure at best for those who undertake to entertain a hungry public, they were able to wait for inspiration." Trollope's fecundity was prodigious. There was no limit to the work he was ready to do. It is not unjust to say that he sacrificed quality to quantity. Abundance, certainly, is in itself a great merit. Almost all the greatest writers have been abundant. But Trollope's fertility was gross, importunate, he himself contended, we believe, that he had given to the world a greater number of printed pages of fiction than any of his literary contemporaries. Not only did his novels follow each other without visible intermission, overlapping and treading on each other's heels, but most of these works are of extraordinary length. Orley Farm, can you forgive her? He knew he was right are exceedingly voluminous tales. The Way We Live Now is one of the longest of modern novels. Trollope produced, moreover, in the intervals of larger labor, a great number of short stories, many of them charming, as well as various books of travel, and two or three biographies. He was the great improvisatore of these latter years. Two distinguished storytellers of the other sex, one in France and one in England, have shown an extraordinary facility of composition. But Trollope's pace was brisker even than that of the wonderful Madame Sand and the delightful Mrs. Oliphant. He had taught himself to keep this pace, and had reduced his admirable faculty to a system— Every day of his life he wrote a certain number of pages of his current tale, a number sacramental and invariable, independent of mood and place. It was once the fortune of the author of these lines to cross the Atlantic in his company, and he has never forgotten the magnificent example of plain persistence that it was in the power of the eminent novelist to give on that occasion. The season was unpropitious, the vessel overcrowded, the voyage detestable, 
but Trollope shut himself up in his cabin every morning for a purpose which, on the part of a distinguished writer who was also an invulnerable sailor, could only be communion with the muse. He drove his pen as steadily on the tumbling ocean as in Montague Square, and as his voyages were many, it was his practice before sailing to come down to the ship and confer with the carpenter, who was instructed to rig up a rough writing-table in his small sea-chamber. Trollope has been accused of being deficient in imagination, but in the face of such a fact as that the charge will scarcely seem just. The power to shut one's eyes, one's ears, to say nothing of another sense, upon the scenery of a pitching cunarder, and open them upon the loves and sorrows of Lily Dale, or the conjugal embarrassments of Lady Glencora Palliser, is certainly a faculty which could take to itself wings. The imagination that Trollope possessed he had at least thoroughly at his command. I speak of all this in order to explain, in part, why it was that, with his extraordinary gift, there was always in him a certain infusion of the common. He abused his gift, overworked it, rode his horse too hard. As an artist he never took himself seriously. Many people will say this was why he was so delightful. The people who take themselves seriously are prigs and bores, and Trollope with his perpetual story, which was the only thing he cared about, his strong good sense, hearty good nature, generous appreciation of life in all its varieties, responds in perfection to a certain English ideal. According to that ideal, it is rather dangerous to be explicitly or consciously an artist, to have a system, a doctrine, a form. Trollope from the first went in, as they say, for having as little form as possible. It is probably safe to affirm that he had no views whatever on the subject of novel writing. His whole manner is that of a man who regards the practice as one of the more delicate industries, but has never troubled his head nor clogged his pen with theories about the nature of his business. Fortunately, he was not obliged to do so, for he had an easy road to success, and his honest, familiar, deliberate way of treating his readers as if he were one of them, and shared their indifference to a general view, their limitations of knowledge, their love of a comfortable ending, endeared him to many persons in England and America. It is in the name of some chosen form that, of late years, things have been made most disagreeable for the novel reader, who has been treated by several votaries of the new experiments in fiction to unwanted and bewildering sensations. With Trollope we were always safe, there were sure to be no new experiments. His great, his inestimable merit, was a complete appreciation of the usual. This gift is not rare in the annals of English fiction. It would naturally be found in a walk of literature in which the feminine mind has labored so fruitfully. Women are delicate and patient observers. They hold their noses close, as it were, to the texture of life. 
They feel and perceive the real with a kind of personal tact, and their observations are recorded in a thousand delightful volumes. Trollope, therefore, with his eyes comfortably fixed on the familiar, the actual, was far from having invented a new category. His great distinction is that in resting there his vision took in so much of the field, and then he felt all daily and immediate things as well as saw them, felt them in a simple, direct, salubrious way, with their sadness, their gladness, their charm, their comicality, all their obvious and measurable meanings. He never wearied of the pre-established round of English customs, never needed a respite or a change, was content to go on indefinitely watching the life that surrounded him and holding up his mirror to it. Into this mirror the public, at first especially, grew very fond of looking, for it saw itself reflected in all the most credible and supposable ways, with that curiosity that people feel to know how they look when they are represented just as they are, by a painter who does not desire to put them into an attitude, to drape them for an effect, to arrange his light and his accessories. This exact and on the whole becoming image, projected upon a surface without a strong intrinsic tone, constitutes mainly the entertainment that Trollope offered his readers. The striking thing to the critic was that his robust and patient mind had no particular bias, his imagination no light of its own. He saw things neither pictorially and grotesquely like Dickens, nor with that combined disposition to satire and to literary form, which gives such body, as they say of wine, to the manner of Thackeray, nor with anything of the philosophic, the transcendental caste, the desire to follow them to their remote relations, which we associate with the name of George Eliot. Trollope had his elements of fancy, of satire, of irony, but these qualities were not very highly developed, and he walked mainly by the light of his good sense, his clear, direct vision of the things that lay nearest, and his great natural kindness. There was something remarkably tender and friendly in his feeling about all human perplexities. He takes the good-natured, temperate, conciliatory view, the humorous view, perhaps, for the most part, yet without a touch of pessimistic prejudice. As he grew older, and had sometimes to go farther afield for his subjects, he acquired a savor of bitterness, and reconciled himself sturdily to treating of the disagreeable. A more copious record of disagreeable matters could scarcely be imagined, for instance, than the way we live now. But, in general, he has a wholesome mistrust of morbid analysis, and aversion to inflicting pain. He has an infinite love of detail, but his details are, for the most part, the innumerable items of the expected. When the French are disposed to pay a compliment to the English mind, they are so good as to say that there is in it something remarkably on it. If I might borrow this epithet without seeming to be patronizing, I should apply it to the genius of Anthony Trollope. 
he represents in an eminent degree this natural decorum of the english spirit and represents it all the better that there is not in him a grain of the mawkish or the prudish he writes he feels he judges like a man talking plainly and frankly about many things and is by no means destitute of a certain saving grace of coarseness but he has kept the purity of his imagination and held fast to old-fashioned reverences and preferences he thinks it a sufficient objection to several topics to say simply that they are unclean there was nothing in his theory of the story-teller's art that tended to convert the reader's or the writer's mind into a vessel for polluting things he recognized the right of the vessel to protest and would have regarded such a protest as conclusive with a considerable turn for satire though this perhaps is more evident in his early novels than in his later ones he had as little as possible of the quality of irony he never played with a subject never juggled with the sympathies or the credulity of his reader was never in the least paradoxical or mystifying he sat down to his theme in a serious business-like way with his elbows on the table and his eye occasionally wandering to the clock to touch successively upon these points is to attempt a portrait which i shall perhaps not altogether have failed to produce the source of his success in describing the life that lay nearest to him and describing it without any of those artistic perversions that come as we have said from a powerful imagination from a cynical humour or from a desire to look as george eliot expresses it for the suppressed transitions that unite all contrasts the essence of this love of reality was his extreme interest in character this is the fine and admirable quality in trollope this is what will preserve his best works in spite of those flatnesses which keep him from standing on quite the same level as the masters indeed this quality is so much one of the finest to my mind at least that it makes me wonder the more that the writer who had it so abundantly and so naturally should not have just that distinction which trollope lacks and which we find in his three brilliant contemporaries if he was in any degree a man of genius and i hold that he was it was in virtue of this happy instinctive perception of human varieties his knowledge of the stuff we are made of his observation of the common behaviour of men and women was not reasoned nor acquired not even particularly studied all human doings deeply interested him human life to his mind was a perpetual story but he never attempted to take the so-called scientific view the view which has lately found ingenious advocates among the countrymen and successors of balzac he had no airs of being able to tell you why people in a given situation would conduct themselves in a particular way it was enough for him that he felt their feelings and struck the right note because he had as it were a good ear if he was a knowing psychologist he was so by grace he was just and true without apparatus and without effort 
he must have had a great taste for the moral question. He evidently believed that this is the basis of the interest of fiction. We must be careful, of course, in attributing convictions and opinions to Trollope, who, as I have said, had as little as possible of the pedantry of his art, and whose occasional chance utterances in regard to the object of the novelist and his means of achieving it are of an almost startling simplicity. But we certainly do not go too far in saying that he gave his practical testimony in favor of the idea that the interest of a work of fiction is great in proportion as the people stand on their feet. His great effort was evidently to make them stand so. If he achieved this result with as little as possible of a flourish of the hand, it was nevertheless the measure of his success. If he had taken sides on the droll, bemuddled opposition between novels of character and novels of plot, I can imagine him to have said, except that he never expressed himself in epigrams, that he preferred the former class, inasmuch as character in itself is plot, while plot is by no means character. It is more safe, indeed, to believe that his great good sense would have prevented him from taking an idle controversy seriously. Character, in any sense in which we can get at it, is action, and action is plot, and any plot which hangs together, even if it pretends to interest us only in the fashion of a Chinese puzzle, plays upon our emotion, our suspense, by means of personal references. We care what happens to people only in proportion as we know what people are. Trollope's great apprehension of the real, which was what made him so interesting, came to him through his desire to satisfy us on this point, to tell us what certain people were and what they did in consequence of being so. That is the purpose of each of his tales, and if these things produce an illusion, it comes from the gradual abundance of his testimony as to the temper, the tone, the passions, the habits, the moral nature of a certain number of contemporary Britons. His stories, in spite of their great length, deal very little in the surprising, the exceptional, the complicated. As a general thing, he has no great story to tell. The thing is not so much a story as a picture. If we hesitate to call it a picture, it is because the idea of composition is not the controlling one, and we feel that the author would regard the artistic, in general, as a kind of affectation. There is not even much description in the sense which the present votaries of realism in France attach to that word. The painter lays his scene in a few deliberate, not especially pictorial strokes, and never dreams of finishing the piece for the sake of enabling the reader to hang it up. The finish, such as it is, comes later, from the slow and somewhat clumsy accumulation of small illustrations. These illustrations are sometimes of the commonest. Trollope turns them out inexhaustibly, repeats them freely, unfolds them without haste and without rest. But they are all of the most obvious sort, and they are none the worse for that. 
The point to be made is that they have no great spectacular interest. We beg pardon of the innumerable love affairs that Trollope has described, like many of the incidents, say, of Walter Scott and of Alexander Dumas. If we care to know about them, as repetitions of a usual case, it is because the writer has managed, in his candid, literal, somewhat lumbering way, to tell us that about the men and women concerned, which has already excited on their behalf the impression of life. It is a marvel by what homely arts, by what imperturbable buttonholing persistence, he contrives to excite this impression. Take, for example, such a work as The Vicar of Bullhampton. It would be difficult to state the idea of this slow but excellent story, which is a capital example of interest produced by the quietest conceivable means. The principal persons in it are a lively, jovial, high-tempered country clergyman, a young woman who is in love with her cousin, and a small, rather dull squire who is in love with the young woman. There is no connection between the affairs of the clergyman and those of the two other persons, save that these two are the vicar's friends. The vicar gives countenance, for Christian charity's sake, to a young countryman who is suspected, falsely as it appears, of murder, and also to the lad's sister, who is more than suspected of leading an immoral life. Various people are shocked at his indiscretion, but in the end he is shown to have been no worse a clergyman because he is a good fellow. A cantankerous nobleman who has a spite against him causes a Methodist conventicle to be erected at the gates of the vicarage. But afterward, finding that he has no title to the land used for this obnoxious purpose, causes the conventicle to be pulled down, and is reconciled with the parson, who accepts an invitation to stay at the castle. Mary Lowther, the heroine of The Vicar of Bullhampton, is sought in marriage by Mr. Harry Gilmore, to whose passion she is unable to respond. She accepts him, however, making him understand that she does not love him, and that her affections are fixed upon her kinsman, Captain Marrable, whom she would marry, and who would marry her, if he were not too poor to support a wife. If Mr. Gilmore will take her on these terms, she will become his spouse, but she gives him all sorts of warnings. They are not superfluous, for, as Captain Marrable presently inherits a fortune, she throws over Mr. Gilmore, who retires to foreign lands, heartbroken, inconsolable. This is the substance of The Vicar of Bullhampton. The reader will see that it is not a very tangled skein. But if the interest is gradual, it is extreme and constant, and it comes altogether from excellent portraiture. It is essentially a moral, a social interest. There is something masterly in the large-fisted grip with which, in work of this kind, Trollope handles his brush. The vicar's nature is thoroughly analyzed and rendered, and his monotonous friend the squire, a man with limitations, but possessed and consumed by a genuine passion, is equally near the truth. 
Trollope has described again and again the ravages of love, and it is wonderful to see how well in these delicate matters his plain good sense and good taste serve him. His story is always primarily a love story, and a love story constructed on an inveterate system. There is a young lady who has two lovers, or a young man who has two sweethearts. We are treated to the innumerable forms in which this predicament may present itself, and the consequences, sometimes pathetic, sometimes grotesque, which spring from such false situations. Trollope is not what is called a colorist. Still less is he a poet. He is seated on the back of heavy-footed prose. But his account of those sentiments which the poets are supposed to have made their own is apt to be as touching as demonstrations more lyrical. There is something wonderfully vivid in the state of mind of the unfortunate Harry Gilmore, of whom I have just spoken, and his history, which has no more pretensions to style than if it were cut out of yesterday's newspaper, lodges itself in the imagination in all sorts of classic company. He is not handsome, nor clever, nor rich, nor romantic, nor distinguished in any way. He is simply, rather, a dense, narrow-minded, stiff, obstinate, commonplace, conscientious modern Englishman, exceedingly in love, and, from his own point of view, exceedingly ill-used. He is interesting because he suffers, and because we are curious to see the form that suffering will take in that particular nature. Our good fortune with Trollope is that the person put before us will have, in spite of opportunities not to have it, a certain particular nature. The author has cared enough about the character of such a person to find out exactly what it is. Another particular nature in The Vicar of Bullhampton is the surly, sturdy, skeptical old farmer Jacob Brattle, who doesn't want to be patronized by the parson, and in his dumb, dusky, half-brutal, half-spiritual melancholy, surrounded by domestic troubles, financial embarrassments, and a puzzling world, declines altogether to be won over to clerical optimism. Such a figure as Jacob Brattle, purely episodical though it be, is an excellent English portrait. As thoroughly English, and the most striking thing in the book, is the combination in the nature of Frank Fenwick, the delightful vicar, of the patronizing conventional clerical element, with all sorts of manliness and spontaneity. The union, or to a certain extent the contradiction, of official and personal geniality. Trollope touches these points in a way that shows that he knows his man. Delicacy is not his great sign, but when it is necessary, he can be as delicate as anyone else. End of chapter 4, part 1, Anthony Trollope